My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the gallery and I'm absolutely delighted tonight to have this chance for discussion with the ultra-red artists. We've had two performances, we have an exhibition and tonight will be a chance to reflect on what has happened. Before we start, I must thank the sponsors to whom we are very grateful, Aeroplan, Canada Council for the Arts and the Contemporary Circle. Uh, by the way, this evening's event is going to be podcasts from our website, so if you, if you speak into the microphone, please know that you'll be podcast from the website. And we do ask that if at any point you're joining in, you use a microphone so that people can hear the questions as well as the responses. I'd now like to introduce Jana Graham. Jana was the manager of community programs here at the AGO, and now, luckily, I think, is doing a PhD in, in England. She has been the liaison between Ultrared and the Art Gallery of Ontario. And it's been an interesting time, I think. So I'm going to ask Jana to introduce Ultra Red. Interesting, indeed. <laughs> All right. Um, so welcome, everyone. It's great to see you here. Um, I've had the great pleasure of working with and indeed joining Ultra Red through this project, which has been incredible for me because I've been a fan for a really long time, so, and have always, um, or have been, oh, can you still hear me? Okay, have been following Ultra Red's work um, and been really inspired by the combination of um, commitment to a cultural practice um, that is based in community organizing and political organizing, and um, a practice that creates spaces and processes, I think, for reflection that doesn't often happen um, either within the spaces of culture or within the spaces of political organizing. I think um, the, the kinds of processes that we've seen over the last week and the kinds of things that we have heard, um, I haven't heard before. And, and I'm really excited to be a part of this. Tonight what we're going to do is uh, reflect on what it's been to be a part of these different aspects of the Silent Listen project. So for those of you who haven't been involved in everything, I'll just let you know what's happened <laughs> so that you know what we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> a week ago, it, I can't believe it was only a week ago, <laughs> but a week ago, um, we started, uh, we hosted a performance at the AGO, and this was the seventh performance of Silent Listen in North America, and this was the seventh um, moment in which community organizers involved um, involved in AIDS activism, researchers, people living with HIV, uh, AIDS came together and reflected uh, into a record, a public record of the AIDS epidemic in North America. Um, those seven performances culminated in the installation that you can see in the Fudger Rotunda, and if you haven't seen it already, we really encourage you to go see it and listen to it, most importantly, at the end of this evening. On Monday, we hosted an incredible performance um, with seven tables, each facilitated by one person from those performances and a musician. Um, we had over 30, 40 people from the AIDS conference come and make incredible statements about their work within their own communities around the world. Um, it, was, it was quite incredible, and we're going to be reflecting on that this evening. So I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to pass the mic over to the facilitators and musicians that we have here with us tonight who are going to introduce themselves, and then we're going to move into a process of 
analysis, and hopefully action. Thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Shanaal Moore. I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I work as a advocate in the uh, Positive Health Clinic um, <clears throat> in Pittsburgh, which is part of Allegheny General Hospital there. And I did put my statement into the record at the Andy Warhol Museum in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Cynthia from an orga organization called Stella that's based in Montreal, uh, by and for sex workers. My name is Eddie Peel. I'm a member of Ultra Red. Good evening. My name is Don Ryan. I'm a member of Ultra Red. Um, my name is Pedro Soto, and I came from Los Angeles, California. Hi, my name is Robert Samber, and I am a member of Ultra Red. My name is Andrew Zeely. I'm a composer and sound artist, and I live and work in Toronto. Hi, my name is Rick Wadlow. I am the president of the Southern Illinois Regional Effort for AIDS down in Carbondale, Illinois. Hi, I'm Richard Klinkerfuss, and I'm the secretary of Southern Illinois Regional Effort for AIDS. I'm Scott Kerr. I'm a musician. I live and work in Toronto. I'm going to talk briefly about one of the uh, core conceits of the silent listen performance, um, which has to do with the issue of silence. Uh, those of you who, actually it would be interesting to know, how many of you were um, at either of the two performances? The one on Wednesday night or the one on Monday night? All right. Um, so as you know, and those of you who don't know, the, the performances begin with a performance of the uh, canonical piece by John Cage, 4.33, 4 minutes and 33 seconds, often described as 4 minutes and 33 seconds of silence, um, which is a, an inaccurate description. It actually is the condition for listening, and I think that that is a signal component of the way in which we've thought about the structure of this piece. Um, we actually found ourselves moving between two apparently contradictory statements as we were developing this work. One is um, the, the uh, classic activist, AIDS activist statement, silence equals death. And for anybody who was involved in the activists' movement um, anywhere in the world, essentially, in the late 1980s uh, and early 1990s, the reality of that equation would be absolutely apparent to you. The other is um, a statement by Paulo Freire, the Brazilian uh, community activist, pedagogist, um, social activist, um, who noted that silence is the condition for listening. And a large part of the work that we've been doing is thinking about the conditions of silence and silence as the condition for action. As somebody who is um, not only here as uh, a member of Ultra Red and engaged in the work that's happening in the gallery this week um, and, and last week, but also here and very much involved with events that are happening at the International AIDS Conference, um, where I have presented on a number of panels and will be doing so in the future. Um, 
It is an extraordinary experience to be sitting in the midst of the multiple statements that are being made uh, in that arena and thinking about how the many voices that are participating in the International AIDS Conference are actually being funneled through processes of privilege, um, of listening, of foregrounding, of silencing, of occlusion in, in some way that's going to in fact determine what agendas are going to arise to the surface and are going to be considered the dominant genders for the epidemic in the coming years and what voices and what statements and what positions are in fact going to fall away. Um, they are for a moment going to sort of rise in this collaborative community process to some kind of collective sharing, but will also return once this conference is over to a position of marginalization in some way. So part of the, part of the politics of the silent listen piece, for me at least, is a politics about the way in which listening, if you engage in it actively, can reveal some of the structures of power that determine what actually exists in a space, what gets amplified in a space, what becomes the agenda for future action in some way. And I think that is, for me, one of the signal political structures that we have tried to create through the participatory process that we have engaged in. And it's evident, I believe, also in the installation version of this piece, which opened today. Can I, I'm one of these people who has to stand. Sorry, it's, I'm, so I'm, I'm going to stand. Hi, I'm Don again. I wanted to sort of pick up from some of the comments that Robert made. Um, and uh, before we hear from all the folks who've joined us tonight who've been a part of this project, um, I wanted to give you a little bit of background and for us, um, some of the conceptual apparatus, um, not just for last night, but the overall arc of the project. Myra is joining us from Banff, so she was um, in the audience at the Banff performance. It's nice to see you, Myra. Um, for, for Ultra Red, when we began in 1994, um, we were very much at that moment informed by our own personal experiences as members of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Uh, in Los Angeles. At the same time that we were informed by those experiences, those protests, those arrests, the friends we lost, we were also at, um, being informed by our knowledge and understanding of conceptual art practices. So conceptual art practices and ideas around duration, repetition, structure, systems, processes as means of developing art projects. And this is sort of how we began, um, with these two voices, one on one shoulder and one on the other. That is our AIDS activist experience on the one side and on the other, conceptualism. This sort of duality was um, uh, exposed to a third voice when we entered into a collaboration in the late 90s with a group of housing organizers who were working in public housing in East Los Angeles. It was through this collaboration with a group called the Union de Vecinos, the United Neighbors, 
that we began to have an extended discussion and dialogue with popular education. And popular education, as uh, Robert has mentioned, um, initially was introduced to us um, in the late 60s by Paulo Freire in Brazil. And you know, when you go back and you, you look at um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, his um, first book that most of us in this room have, have read, of course, right, we're smiling. Um, there's this fantastic footnote, you know, the, the real story is in the footnotes. There's this great footnote in Pedagogy of the Oppressed where he sort of talks about you know, this sort of conceptual apparatus of a procedure. So what is this procedure that he's advancing? And he's, in very simple terms, he says, the procedure begins with an experience of reflection, followed by an analysis, followed by an action, followed by reflection, followed by analysis, followed by action, followed by reflection, followed by analysis, followed by action, and so forth. And he, um, in the same footnote, he then says, you know, what, what is this thing that's going to start the reflection process? And it's awesome, right? He says in the, in the footnote, let's think about some form of objectification of our experience. Let's just think about this. Something that, that we can sort of put in the middle of the room and as a group that is gathered here, like, like here, like this group, like you and this group, that we will look upon this object and we reflect upon how it communicates to our experiences. And Ferry mentions three possible objects. The first object is a photograph. So we'll have a photograph in the room and we will look at this photograph and how it represents our experience and out of our reflections of this, we will begin to develop a collective analysis. The second object that he suggests is theater, a theater piece. We could do a play. The script for this play could be developed collectively. It could be developed by one of the members of the group, of the community. We watch the play. We have a discussion in which we reflect upon what we've seen. That reflection leads to an analysis of how we have a common experience around the issues that we're experiencing. And out of this analysis, we have a plan of action. Then the third thing he mentions is audio. So for sound artists, this is, of course, like, you know, orgasm. So the, the third thing is audio, that it could be a tape recording of someone speaking. This was the starting point for this project. So how can we create a record of people's statements about our experiences with the AIDS crisis today in this moment? So the performances that you have seen, that you've participated in, that you've entered statements into the record with, these performances for us are an attempt to stage a moment of collective reflection. What statements need to be entered into the record of the AIDS crisis in Pittsburgh, in Banff, in Montreal, in Toronto, Los Angeles, Baltimore, and Carbondale? The second step for us then is an analysis. How do we develop an analysis based upon these mo moments of collective reflection? And the installation that you see down the hall is a sort of initial step on our part to begin that process of an analyzing the statements that have been entered into the record. What are we hearing in the statements? 
And then out of that, then we can begin to ask the question, what does an action sound like based on what we have heard? Now me, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I just, I'm always wanting to get to the punchline, you know? I don't know if you're all like that, but I have such a hard time waiting. And I would love to just launch right into that question. But I think today what we need to do is stop for a moment and reflect on what we have heard so that we can begin the process of developing an analysis of where the AIDS crisis is today, how we're experiencing the AIDS crisis, how do we understand the power issues, the power issues that Robert mentioned, so forth. How can we begin to excavate an analysis here collectively in this room? And then that will begin to hopefully insinuate where we can go with our actions. So today, this is where I would like to be. I would like to ask a question of what have we heard? What have you heard? And what have you heard? What have you heard? I'm going to basically open the mic to the folks who are gathered here at the front. In no way to exclude the folks in the audience. You have participated in the performances. You have heard the performances. So you also, what have you heard? For the folks who are sitting here, for Rick, for Richard, for Andrew, Scott, Pedro, even Eddie, and <laughs> Cynthia, and Shanad, and, Sh and Jana, and Robert, what have we heard? Particularly, if, if I could sort of even for, frame this a little more. What you heard Monday night, how is it different from, how are there echoes of, what you heard when you first spoke into the record? What sort of statements have you heard? What sort of refrains are repeating for you? What have you heard? from the statements entered into the record. Does anyone have any comments? And I'm actually going to write them on the board, because as you know, I'm an old school pop-ed person, so I like to, I need this. We're going to put them all over the place, and we're just going to leave them here, so when people come in tomorrow for their caviar and avocado, they're going to see our notes from this meeting on the walls, right? That's exactly, right, James? Right. So, so again, I, I ask the question, what have you heard? from statements entered into the record. Yes, we will begin with Richard. I'm also like Don, I like to stand. <laughs> For me, what I heard in Carbondale and here was still how fragmented the efforts are in this war against this horrible disease. After 20 years, we still don't have a solution. Everybody has their own idea. The activists in the field bring their voices forward. Some of us keep fighting the fight, and others fall by the wayside. What have you heard based on statements entered into the record? Well, um, being part of both the Pittsburgh and the international performance here in Toronto, what uh, is pretty uniform for me is just the pain that people are experiencing when they're dealing with HIV, either directly or indirectly, um, through family members or through themselves um, being affected or people that they care for being affected with this disease. And uh, I think regardless of nationality, regardless of language spoken, last uh, on Monday at the conference, um, it was very apparent, the pain was very apparent, regardless of the language this person spoke, even though you couldn't particularly understand 
what they were saying uh, word for word. There was one universal thing that you did understand, and that was the pain that they felt um, having to deal with this. So we've heard the notion of fragmentation in the responses, the experience of pain of people, their families, taking care of folks. What else have we heard in the statements? Rick. The biggest thing that stands out for me, not only in the Carbondale performance, but in this international performance that we did Monday night, was the worldwide stigma that is attached to this disease. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what culture you belong to, there is, still remains, a definite stigma attached to this disease. People hear HIV AIDS and they close the door. And this is something that we have to work on. It's a big issue that needs to be worked on worldwide. Something else that folks have heard, perhaps someone from the audience, something that you have heard, Monday night's performance, previous performance, comparison between the two of state, from the statements entered into the record. Cynthia? Hi again. Um, I think in Montreal's performance, I didn't really hear much because I was so nervous. <laughs> I actually just realized what an opportunity I had to, uh, what an opportunity it was to give that statement for me after the fact. Um, but so the difference for me with uh, the performance on Monday um, is I, I heard a lot of things. But mainly, it may sound weird that, uh, because the question is, what have you heard? But I think I heard myself stop and think. I mean, I've been advocating for human rights for four years now. I work at Stella, so sex workers' rights, but also human rights. And uh, I've been talking about it for four days nonstop with a lack of sleep. <laughs> but uh, I think often we uh, don't stop and really think um, take the time to stop and really think so. That was something that I really enjoyed on Monday. Other things that people heard. Yes, Scott. Hi, I heard, um, what I heard I guess that was in common in both performances uh, on Wednesday and on Monday was urgency for a wide variety of things, whether it's, you know, releasing of funding, change in understanding, change in consciousness. Um, sometimes that urgency verged on anger. Other times it was more kind of uh, inward and emotional, uh, people crying, that kind of thing. Um, in the Wednesday performance where there was one table, it was very acute. You'd hear one person talking and the whole room would be focused on that person's voice. Um, on uh, Monday, it became a sort of a vortex of urgency that was kind of shared amongst the people. People's reasons kind of for, for the urgency sort of swirled together for me. Additional comments of what people heard from statements. Vera? Oh, my name's Vera Frankel, um, and I attended the Toronto performance and the international performance, and the launch of your CD. <laughs> um, I'm considering myself an honorary member of Ultra Ray. 
I was immensely moved uh, by, by both performances. And um, what struck me a week ago was the intensity of the mixture of grief, hope, and rage. They were mixed differently in each testimony, but they were all there. And along with that, I also, I don't know if this is a matter of hearing, but I also was aware of different degrees of entitlement to speak. Some of the witnesses were known to me and some were, were new to me, and it was clear that their relation to their own experience and their right to say what they felt differed. And yet the climate you created was indeed a place where they, they were able to speak. I forget how, Robert, you described it, but it was something about what you said about silence and, and creating a space for that discourse to take place. So I was hearing that as the overriding context. Thank you, Vera. Anyone else? What did they hear? What did you hear? Could you say your name? My name's Pernita, and um, I actually wasn't fortunate enough to have attended any of the performances, which I'm a little bit sad about, but I was uh, lucky enough to have been informed about this this evening by Andrew, and I've worked with him in the past on an art activist um, agenda before. And um, this issue of what is happening in Africa today is a very important issue to me. And what I hear over and over again is um, a lack of will with respect to people in power who can actually make this happen. And I believe, in fact, I would characterize it as a huge sense of denial. That's the overriding factor for me. Someone else. What did you hear from the statements entered into the record on Wednesday, August 9th, Monday, August 14th? We're in the installation. If you could say your name. Uh, Catherine Delaney. I, I just attended the um, performance on um, Monday night in Toronto. What struck me when I walked in, I've, been, I've spent the week at the conference, and what struck me when I was uh, uh, entered the room upstairs, coming in down from the stairs, that it was like entering the, the conference. <laughs> Like the sound was similar, the just an overlapping of voices, and it also was once I came down the stairs, it, it was different, but um, it's just very powerful and uh, moving. I'd like to add one reflection, yes. if I can, on Monday night at the uh, during the performance. For those of you who were there and heard all seven tables going at the same time. I heard a, a gentleman in front of us say, this is kind of maddening. And putting that in this kind of a, a vortex type thing, that made me immediately think of and conclude political madness over this disease. And we do have that worldwide today, no matter where you're from. If you could say your name. Hi, I'm, I'm Walt Sinderfit from Los Angeles, and I'm an activist and a person living with AIDS. 
Monday night here was the first time I've actually participated in one of these, but I was sort of participated back at the beginning when we were doing the popular education outreach towards organizing in Los Angeles that led on to this project. And I've had the opportunity to listen to some of the CDs that Don so generously shared with me of some of the other intervening performances. I guess this time what I heard um, <laughs> first was the seven table effect or something. It was cacophony to me. I mean, I, I heard a high volume. I heard atonal disharmonic sound that was hard for me to make sense of. It was uncomfortable to listen to. It was difficult for me to find meaning in. Until and unless I went table to table and focused on listening to one person at a time, then I could hear a, a story, a, a testimony, or, or something that made sense, at, at least as that person's experience or testimony. The other thing that I heard, and, and I guess I've heard this, I heard this that Monday night, but I've heard it all week at the conference too, is, and I don't know whether I'm hearing my own, just baffling in my own head or, or how much from outside, is um, frustration at transcending one's individual experience, whatever it is, towards common holdings and common bases for action. And the inability, or in some cases, un unwillingness to find the tools or the framework to find a strategy and a path of action big enough and powerful enough to make a difference in this pandemic which really reflects in some concentrated ways just about all the social oppression that exists in the world. But that's kind of where I am at of trying to, both in my own self and in listening to other people make, make that transition or make it once again because it's, it's a repetitive thing from my own experience and that of those that I hear to a, a strategy that's big enough. Thanks, Walt. Uh, this is Eddie again. I definitely have to echo what you said, Walt. Uh, the, one, the one word that I've been using to describe it is definitely cacophony. And when people asked amongst ourselves, how, have we processed it yet? I mean, it's been two days now. I, I can't. I'm completely overwhelmed. When I, uh, where I sat at uh, one of the tables doing the audio processing, I could barely hear people sitting three feet in front of me. Um, I was on the other side of the speaker, so I, I couldn't hear any of the projection. I was in the, the far corner of the room, and all I heard was the noise floor. Uh, all the voices happening at one time. The, the processing of the voices, cutting in and out, um, specific pitches and notes and things coming in and out. Um, I would put the headphones on every once in a while just to make sure that we were getting a recording of what was being said into the microphones at my table. Um, I did hear bits of what people had to say, especially at the beginning when it was a bit quieter, but any hope of remembering that is I'm not really holding on to right now. I just, I have, I'm completely overwhelmed by what it was to be in that space with that many people talking about one subject at the same time and, all, and what, what that subject is affected by and how many areas of life that covers. I just heard an overwhelming noise floor. Well, uh, uh, what I feel in my table, I be facilitator for Latinos, and they feel 
very, very proud about to participate because we are minorities and um, um, the first thing was they, uh, did I feel was that they were emotionally, emotionally feeling in deep inside uh, with the big vibrations uh, of uh, their feelings and, and thoughts. And this kind of uh, uh, laboratory exercise in this uh, gate uh, was for them, making them proud. And they, they were very excited uh, to talk about our necessities, poverty, and for Latinos in third world country. And was very, very good experience for them. Almost uh, they were crying and was very good experience. Was very motivational, motivational for them. If I could say one more thing, Mrs. Shannad, again. Um, <clears throat> what I wanted to say was, um, even though we had the seven tables and you heard this kind of disharmonic uh, noise, uh, what I felt was really moving to me is that the participants who were speaking didn't feel distracted by the, the noise that was going on. So that just shows the importance of what they were saying and the meaning of what they were saying and an opportunity to be able to say something in a public space like that was, um, was phenomenal for them and was phenomenal to watch them. And even though as a facilitator, I'm trying to listen to what was going on at other tables as well as my table, they seemed really, the participants seemed really focused in what they were saying um, now that they were given that opportunity to say something. Okay, we're gonna go back here. If you could say your name, please. Hi, my name's Michael, and I was at both the Toronto performance and the uh, international performance. I just want to respond to the, the repeated coming back to it was uh, in the international performance. It was fragmentary. It was ca cacophony, buzz, whatever. Um, this is one of the few occasions where I think I get to be the optimistic one for a little bit. I didn't hear cacophony. I heard polyphony. I think that the way that the uh, statements all came together in the same place, as with polyphony, you have to pay attention to one musical line to be able to hear what's really going on. You can't hear all of it once. And uh, the way the tables were set up, the way that the whole thing was framed uh, really encouraged people to engage with individual tables. That's you know, a rare thing to see that much movement in the purported audience of a, of a performance. And I thought it was really incredible how free people felt to move and also how sort of they were almost forced to move from table to table to, to implicate themselves in each statement that they were happening to listen to at any any one point. Of course, you can't hear it all, but it's a big issue. You can't hear it all anyways. Um, and those that claim they can hear it all at any one point and have the answer usually work for uh, pharma companies. One more addition, and then we'll go to... Oh, I just wanted to add uh, a bit what Shinoda was saying about 
the focus that how people were talking and how focused they were and undistracted. Um, even walking by the tables, uh, it was the sound was blurry, like if you weren't focused into one voice. So it was almost like blurry sound and then focused sound. And anyway, I just want to throw that in. It was kind of neat. It's powerful. Thank you. I, for me, there was a kind of oscillation between wondering if the individual testimonies were being drowned out, which I regretted, or whether they collectively were forming a, a single lament. I had anticipated what the treated sound would be like. I was mistaken. I thought, uh, because I was basing my expectations of the Monday performance on what I'd heard on the previous Wednesday. And the Toronto version really uh, created a sacred space and the treatment of the sound, the distillation of each testimony seemed to be, I don't know, like turning wine into cognac. You know, it was, it was, it was another version of the, of the same meaning coming at us differently. When it was all happening at once, I, you know, I tried to cheer myself up and I thought, well, maybe this is very freeing. Maybe when people are in the middle of a lot of noise, they talk more freely. I mean, it's a recipe for bars and for a lot of other situations. So I thought, well, but why am I not feeling the way I felt the previous week? And listening to what everybody here is saying and thinking again about it, I think the performance has situated, the, the international performance situated itself in a state of uncertainty which is quite appropriate for what it was dealing with. It's neither transcendent you know, there was no definition of what was going on. There was masking and revealing in, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not improvisational, but it is spontaneously, you know, the thread that Michael was talking about that you had to follow. I had had a conversation earlier, for example, with the, one of the three women that brought the altarpiece, Kathy. And then when I heard her testimony, it had special meaning for me because I'd had this experience with her. And I wanted more of that. The collective thing became more abstract for me. Although sitting in my mind right now, it's sitting appropriately in this state of uncertainty, which I think is, is okay. Okay, I'll, I'll take one more. I was, it's me, you're Jessica. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I had actually been thinking urgency. That word was in my head when Scott spoke the word urgency, so I, I didn't repeat it. But um, I will now, because there were many kinds of urgency that I heard. There was the urgency of grief. There was the urgency of political action. There was the urgency for cure. There was the urge for harm reduction. There was the, the urge for speaking and participating collectively, um, which actually Sorry, I talk faster than you write. <laughs> I can't say it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. But, but um, that, that actually, um, thinking about that led me to recognize a real generosity that I also sensed in the room, not only in um, a group of activists and people living with HIV and AIDS at every level, um, artists coming together in this city, many of whom had come from elsewhere to participate, but also many people who have spoken their, their grief and their anger and their dismay so many times that they might 
not have otherwise felt that they wanted to, to share that and put themselves through it again. But I think the spirit of the work of both the silence and the listening really invited people to participate um, in a very kind of warm, collective way, even with all of the, the urgency and, and the pain that comes along with that. I'm Jana. Um, I think that I heard gaps. Um, I think when we were, I'm going to talk about the performance, but also what we heard when we spoke with the 20 organizations we met with prior to that performance. And I heard um, the incredible gaps between the policies that government or that govern people's lives, um, the funding structures, the things the entities that people are forced into and the distance from the reality of the epidemic in this city um, and in the world. And, and I also heard the gaps um, in the relationship between cultural institutions and the struggle and um, how that has changed from the early days of this crisis. And I've wondered a great deal about that. In the performances, there were also gaps, and I think in hearing those gaps, they became these sites of generative activity, you know, gaps between speakers, kind of moments of silence um, when the volume in the room came down, and, you know, something, but then something would come out of that, and, and that is very similar to what I, I think I've experienced on the ground in, in this city, which is that the most incredible work is happening in these gaps, and the most incredible kind of coalition building is happening in spite of the fact that everything, all of the policies, all of the funders are working against them. So um, I, I recognize this um, in the spaces of culture as well. And I'm, you know, I'm really interested in understanding how those things, you know, especially the gap between the cultural institutions the privatization of these spaces um, and what they contribute to the larger problem of these gaps um, within the AIDS movement. <laughs>